Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We welcome people regardless of socioeconomic background, skin color, gender orientation, sexual preference, political party, etc., etc. I would like to extend a special welcome to you if you are visiting here with us. If you have a question about this church or this faith, please ask the people at the visitor's table and they will be happy to help you. Also, you may ask me um, if that would be your preference. If you've been attending church for a while and you would like to make this your spiritual home, we would be delighted if you were to become a member of this congregation, which involves taking a class with other people who are becoming new members and signing a book. We come from a long heritage which teaches that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say to you, please let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. To laugh is to risk appearing the fool. To weep is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out for another is to risk exposing our true self. To place our ideas, our dreams before the crowd is to risk loss. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To hope is to risk despair. To to try is to risk failure. To live is to risk dying. We come here to be together, to risk together, to support one another, to applaud for one another, to challenge and comfort one another. We come to be together, and we come here every Sunday morning. If somebody says, why do you all come together? We can say, well, we gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Many of you may be aware that this is our stewardship season, our canvas season, which is a church word for fundraising. And so when we are in our stewardship season, we invite stewards, people who support the church, to speak to you about why they do that. And this morning, Bill and Neva Biggs are here to tell you why they do that. Good morning. Neva and I have been members of this church for over 40 years. We both taught in the RE and LRY. We both served on the board of directors. Neva has been president of the congregation. I was chairman of the House and Grounds Committee for many years, probably better known as a janitor. (laughs) Neva was chairperson of the Futures Committee, fundraiser of the New Building Committee, And finally, she was chairman of the building committee that built this sanctuary. And I would also say that she was more than very instrumental in raising the seed money that got it started. Neva has also served on the Southwest Unitarian Universalist Service uh, (laughs) Board. Uh, We both attended general assemblies, and Neva was speaker at the Women's in Religion General Assembly in Vancouver, British Columbia, 
and also carried from Austin to Vancouver the women's banner sewed by the first women's group at Austin UU. It is a joy to be here today. A joy that Bill and I haven't indulged in for many years. Thank you, Gary Bennett and the committee who asked us to do this testimonial. We found this church in the late 60s, and I say found because we were looking. I had grown up in an earnest and caring Christian church. Then I began to notice that the church held a lot of hypocrisy and intolerance, and it was intellectually compromising. In short, I outgrew that church. But I missed a church family. And Bill and I both thought our children needed to be raised in a caring community to help us with the difficult questions dealing with behavior, creativity, empathy, morality, and the war. This was Vietnam. So we were looking, and we found this most extraordinary body of people, Unitarian Universalists. Through the next 30 years or so, we grew in this church. We grew in spirit and love and in social awareness, and we were not compromised intellectually. In fact, I bet that the combined intelligence, and I don't just mean IQ, I mean the combined intelligence that social scientists and neuroscientists speak about. I bet that the combined intelligence of this small congregation is greater than the larger ones of this town. So we raised our family here, and our children became good adults. We formed many friendships here, some deep friendships that have stood strong, that have even become more precious and supporting as we grow older. Here in this church, we tried to make ourselves better and we tried to make each other better. We tried to make our world better. Here we helped each other when the cry came. When our college-age son was diagnosed with lung cancer, we learned the meaning of grace from our church family. Here we found meaning and purpose in life and the spirit within and without. Here we spent many fun hours discussing what it means to be a UU. We never quite clarified that. <laughs> One night late, little wine, I remember that we made a rhyming creed, something about we are a body composed of significant parts that make us function as a magnificent whole. But it broke up into hilarity as we began identifying our body parts. One woman insisted she was the brains, another said she was the right hand, and then one guy said he thought he was the middle finger. <laughs> Although we can't exactly say what we are, we recognize us when we see us. Because whenever we meet strangers, the people we are most attracted to, the ones we find most appealing, turn out to have a Unitarian connection. Our son married a wonderful girl from Upper State, New York, and we loved her even before we found out she was a Unitarian. There's just something about us 
something fabulously subtle, but it's there. I can't imagine a world without us. I used to say, paraphrasing Thomas Jefferson, that I couldn't understand how any thinking person could not be a Unitarian. Of course, the giveaway there is thinking person. About a dozen years ago, we moved out to Spicewood and seldom find ourselves driving in for Sunday services. I know from experience that to receive the fullness of this church's gifts, one needs to be involved in its everyday life. The inspiring sermons and emotive music to be found here in Sunday morning worship is fantastic. It's very tasty. It's dessert. It's not the whole meal. I hope that you indulge in the whole enchilada and the flan. Even though we can no longer indulge in the meal and rarely the dessert, we do and always will support this church financially because this church needs to be. Bill and I believe that we, the church, are making a difference, that slowly, inexorably, we are moving, nudging, pushing, encouraging, sometimes simply allowing each other and the world towards a higher realm of humanity and consciousness. We found our church. Thank you for being it. It's lovely to see you all again. Summer was great. Kaya and I got to see our first granddaughter in South Carolina for a couple of weeks, and then we drove to Alaska. Um, that was, oddly enough, very restful. And um, as you know from my newsletter article, which I'm sure you all read and remember, um, from before I left, I was worried. I had a lot of fears. I, I didn't know if the, the van might break down far from civilization. Um, it did, and the story of that is in this month's newsletter. I didn't know if we would have the stamina to do six days in a row of over 10 hours of driving. I didn't know if we would be able to sleep comfortably in the back of the van, which is what we did. I didn't know if we would freeze to death or get eaten by bears. Um, It would have been safer with a lot more certainty to stay here for the summer um, we know what a summer in Austin is like. We've did, done that before, and it was delightful. And um, <sighs> Well, you know. So this trip, we did it even though it felt dangerous, and it added immeasurably to my world, I know. I'm going to talk about exploration and discovery today. I'm going to talk about the age of discoverers. We're going to go all the way back to the late 1400s. Because um, Europe had been mired in certainty for a long time, if not safety. Europe was depressed. Uh, There hadn't been a significant scientific discovery in a thousand years. The church was in the catbird seat, but it was corrupt and hypocritical. Everybody knew that the world was spherical. 
only the church made you kind of toe the line and say that it was flat. Um, the, the closest parallel, I think, to our age is evolution, where everybody knows that it's true. It's just you have to pretend not to believe it if you're uh, in certain cultures. I'm not um, going to go all the way into that because that's another sermon. The Nuremberg Chronicle was a publication in Germany, and the 1493 version said that Europe was depressed. The plague had happened. It took 40% of the population in some towns. Everybody thought the end of the world was coming soon. And the Chronicle, after saying Europe was depressed, it said it was a society without hope or vision. And then they left several blank pages at the end uh, so that people could record the rest of the events until the end of the world, which was happening pretty soon. Suddenly the fog lifted. What happened? The Renaissance sprang up. What happened? Why did it? One of the reasons why the fog lifted was that a new world was discovered. A new world. How did that happen? Well, we all know that Leif Erikson was one of the first Europeans, we think, nobody knows, to find the new world where there were already people. Um, But his finding of the new world didn't create a back-and-forth colonization like Columbus's did. So I'm going to talk about Columbus today, not because he's a person you should admire, but just because uh, looking at him gives you a sense of one particular kind of sense of adventure. And I'm also going to talk about Magellan, and I'm also going to talk about Verrazano. So those three European explorers, I'm going to talk about their courage and what it took for them to overcome the imaginative blocks and blind spots of Europe at the time that they were living. As I said, everybody knew the world was a sphere. Everybody's trying to get to China to get rich on the Silk Road, bringing silks and spices back from China. The Silk Road had been the way they went, and it went through Turkey. But in 1483, the Ottoman Turks shut it down. Um, The European kings and queens were tired and broke because what they'd been doing was fighting the Moorish encroachment. The the Islamic Moors were trying to take over Europe, and they almost did, but not quite. And the kings and queens were all battle-weary and tired and frustrated because they couldn't get the spices and the silks and the money that they were addicted to going on the Silk Road, and so they had to find another way. Well, the Portuguese found a way. They sailed south down the coast of Africa. Um, At first, Everybody thought, and the map makers thought, apparently there's a show on PBS about map makers tonight, the map makers thought that the world ended at the equator. And the reason they thought that might be true was that when you sailed toward that way, the north star that you're following disappeared down below the horizon. And they thought, oh, the north star is gone. Uh, It must be the end of the world. And um, the other thing that happened along the coast of Africa was that there's a big desert with red sand, and the rivers wash the red sand out into the ocean, and so the water is the color of blood, which freaked the sailors out. And then the third thing that made the sailors nervous was that 
there is a river that is so large that outpours into the ocean there. And so for 15 miles out, the water is not salty, it's fresh. So the sailors are like, the water turns the color of blood, and the water is fresh, and the North Star is gone, I'm going home. But they really wanted to find a way around, and with the, hope of, with the help of local navigators, African navigators, Vasco da Gama, Portuguese guy, made it around the Horn of Africa and made it to India that way. And apparently, something that I didn't know about in this time, once you found a way somewhere, it was yours. You could, like, patent it. And so the Portuguese signed up this treaty that said... Um, this way down the coast of Africa and around to India is ours. Everybody else find another way. And they did. Um, so they were working on finding another way, and Columbus was one of um, four sailing Italian brothers, the Columbus brothers. They all were sailors, and they all were working for the crown of Spain. And the uh, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand wanted to find a way, and they dismissed Columbus over and over and over again because Columbus said, listen, it's round. I could get there just by sailing the opposite direction. And everybody said, oh, it's too far. That's ridiculous. But there was a debate about how far it was. Was it 5,000 miles or was it 12,000 miles? And um, it had been pretty well measured by the Greeks but um, the 12,000 miles is really what it was, but nobody thought about that there might be a big piece of land in between. <laughs> and so Columbus said, I swear it's 5,000 miles, which incidentally is the distance that a ship can go when it's provisioned in one place. It can, at that time, it could take on enough food and fresh water to go about 5,000 miles. So Columbus said, it's 5,000 miles. I know I can do it. And so finally... The committees that Ferdinand and Isabella had sent the problem to uh, were deadlocked. 12, 5, 12, 5. We don't know. He can't go. We don't have any money. Um, finally, he got funded. And between 1492 and 1503, so in the late 1490s, he made four round trips from Spain to the Americas and back again. This started the colonization of North and South America by the Europeans. Columbus was well-read, he was good at navigating, and he was brave enough to actually sail to places and um, explore them when he got there. And um, he, uh, he, interestingly enough, gave his sailors the instruction not to mess with the uh, peoples that were there. Don't interfere with them. Don't try to change them. Don't try to convert them. Uh, later on, that changed, and he was all about converting them and making a colony and uh, torturing them so that they wouldn't mutiny. Um, he was just horrible to the people who, who were the first peoples in the places that he visited. So, uh, again, we're looking at him with our eyes, but I think even people who looked at him with the eyes of the 1500s would go, ah, that, you're, a, you're, you're too brutal, but who knows? He was so mission-focused to find Asia, to find the Indies, India, 
that when he ran into the Bahamas and then Cuba and then North America, he said, and to his dying day, never changed his mind, I have found Asia. And he called the people Indians that he met. And nobody could convince him, even though almost everybody else knew, this is a new world. We've discovered something new. He was like, no, no, it's Asia. And then in the end of his life, he was very um, interested in the end of the world, and he published many works on the Bible and the end of the world. Um, so he was a little over-mission focused. Now let's talk about Magellan. <laughs> Over-purpose-driven, can you be too much purpose-driven? I don't know. But he was so focused that he forgot to be flexible to take into account new information and change his plan. Okay, Magellan was about 12 years old in 1492 when Columbus discovered the New World. So he grew up being excited about the age of exploration and discovery, and he also knew that the world was a sphere. He joined a fleet as a sailor when he was 22, and he was really good in battle. He was smart, he was capable, he got decorated. Um, then he got in trouble because as soon as, you know, the Japanese have a proverb, the nail that sticks up will be hammered down. And so as soon as he got too good, he got accused of stuff by the crown and almost thrown in jail. But he was living in Morocco at the time, so they couldn't really reach him. And um, he had a right-hand man that he had um, acquired, I think you would say, in um, Malaysia, during one of his early battles, he captured this guy named Enrique and indentured him, which is a word for enslaved, enslaved him and baptized him a Christian. And so um, Enrique stayed with him until his death, and they were partners in their exploration. So um, he had Enrique with him during the ups in his career and the downs in his career. And when he finally did get back into favor with the Spanish crown and funded partly by them and partly by some business people to go in a circumnavigation of the globe, see if he could get all the way around. He and his fleet and Enrique by his right hand, they all went together uh, across the Atlantic Ocean and they went down the coast of South America and found the Straits of Magellan is what they're called now. They weren't called that then. Um, <laughs> He, he called them All Saints Straits because they went through them on November 1st, which is All Saints Day. And um, he could have just gone all the way around South America without too much more trouble, but he didn't know that. And everybody in the world, because of the map makers, had thought that South America touched Antarctica and that you couldn't get through that way. So when he found a way through, a little bit up from the tip of South America, he went through that way to the ocean that looked very peaceful to him, so he named it the Pacific Ocean. So um, then he kept sailing and got to the Philippines. Well, Enrique spoke the language because he was from Malaysia. So they made friends with the king and queen of the first island that they came to, and the king and queen of that island um, converted to Christianity and were baptized, which is what you had to do at the time to be friends with the Europeans. And so um, they became friends. Now, the neighboring island, they went over there. Um, that king was pretty dismissive of Magellan's religion, didn't want to convert. And so when he came back to the first island, 
those, that king and queen said, well, frankly, you know, we're in a war with them. He's a jerk. And um, we would like for you to help us attack him. And Magellan lost his focus. He got a little too uh, excited about battle. And he took a small attack force and went over there, got a bamboo spear through his leg, which uh, made him fall down, and then they just hacked him to pieces. So he lost his life in this battle that was not even part of his mission. He got distracted. He got overconfident. He, he didn't keep his focus. And so he died. Enrique was supposed to get freed, just by the way, when Magellan died. Um, surprisingly enough, the other uh, Europeans on the boat went back on that promise and um, didn't want to free him. And then the king and queen of that island that he had made friends with helped him escape and um, helped him for the rest of his life. So he became a free man. Now, Verrazano, he was an Italian working for the French. Verrazano was a note from a noble family. So he had he had that confidence of nobility, and the kings and queens felt more comfortable with him because he was also noble. Verrazano um, was a brave man because he took his fleet over across the world, but he was also cautious in his bravery, and he did not want to run aground because there were no towboats. You couldn't get, it would take a long time to find help if you ran aground. Magellan's boats, he was nothing but brave. His boats were always running aground. And mostly he would send for help and he would stay with the boat that was stuck and he would keep the people on there, disciplined and mission focused. And then when the help would come, they would all go on. But Verrazano didn't like to get too close. So he came to the North American continent, claimed it for France. And um, he was at the area that now is Cape Fear in North Carolina, where the Outer Banks are. I don't know how many of you have been to the Outer Banks, but they're not very broad. And so there's the Atlantic Ocean, and then there's this tiny little strip of land, and then there's this sound, the Pamlico Sound. Well, it was misty that day. Verrazano was uh, sailing down the coast, seeing the Outer Banks. He could see the sound. On the other side, he's like, oh, there's the Pacific. (laughs) That Magellan made it like it was such a big deal to find his way through. I could find my way through to that. So he writes back to Francis I and says, um, I found the beginning of the Pacific, and I think we could get to China that way, looking across the sound. (laughs) Continuing to explore the coast further upwards, Verrazana and his crew came to... um, the entrance to the Chesapeake Bay, which they sailed past because they were kind of too far off uh, the coast to see it. They missed the mouth of the Delaware River. They sailed down Long Island and met some Wampanoag uh, Indians and um, saw a big, what he called a lake, which, because he didn't want to go on up there, um, he called it a lake, but it was really the Hudson River. And so Henry Hudson in the 1600s got to name that river after himself because Verrazano was just didn't want to get too close. And the not wanting to get too close was his downfall because one of the islands that they came close to, he went to explore the island, didn't want his ship to run aground, so the ship stayed pretty far out. They rowed on in. There were uh, people on that island who were 
cannibals, and um, they ate him. And the sailors on the ship um, couldn't do anything about it because their bows wouldn't reach that far because he hadn't wanted to run aground. So that's a story of somebody who's a little overcautious. Now, why am I talking about this? Why am I saying we're setting sail right now? Well, we're at the beginning of a new church program year, and we're having a discussion at noon about courage and heart and welcome and how we're going to make our space more welcoming. So it's really kind of about the building that we're talking from noon to one. How much courage does it take to to build just right? Of course I want to do it just right because I'm a firstborn child. I have a horror of making mistakes. And one of the, one of the qualifications for leadership, which I work on all the time, is the willingness to look stupid and the willingness to make mistakes. So how many of y'all are not firstborn children? Raise your hand. Okay. We're counting on you. <laughs> what you have to say over and over again is, go ahead, make a mistake. It won't kill you. We could, um, you know, not build enough and be full again and have spent some money and it wouldn't have done any good. Or we could build the wrong stuff that doesn't reflect who we are. Or we could, un, you know, overbuild and, and make ourselves broke with the mortgage payments. And um, we, could, we could try too much and fall on our faces. We could not try enough and, um, and, and look stupid that way. There are just plenteous opportunities for looking stupid. When you're making changes. And I don't want to do any of them. The looking stupid things. I want us to do it perfectly. But that's where I'm counting on the second borns to say it's okay to make a mistake. Thank you. That was, that was enthusiastic. We're going to have to work on that. Yes. So we look at these explorers and their variations on the theme of courage and caution. And we look at ourselves and how courageous and cautious we are and trying to be brave. And I would like to just end with a wonderful phrase that I heard quoted, I'm sure you did too, at at one of the conventions, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who said, this nation demands bold, persistent experimentation. And I think that's what we have to think about doing this year bold, persistent experimentation. And we will forgive each other and go on. And we will encourage and challenge each other. And we will talk together in a calm and civil way. We can do it. Now, we're ready to finish our worship together. Will you please breathe with me and sing with me When I breathe in, sorry, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. Two more times. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out. I breathe out love when I breathe in. I breathe in peace 
When I breathe out, I breathe out love. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.